Hey there, everybody. Welcome on into episode three of The Sco Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great folks over at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield, back into the big chair after what was an eventful but yet enjoyable weekend. More on that in a moment. And we got a big show planned for you today as we're back into a new week. A little bit later, my conversation with USA Today writer Doug Farrar, also the author of The Genius of Desperation. We talked some Tom Brady, some Julian Edelman, some scheme stuff, some Belichick stuff, his book, and a whole lot more. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. We've also got actual football to talk about. Yes, I could focus on a play-by-play breakdown of the entire preseason debut for the New England Patriots with a victory over the Detroit Lions, but instead... I'm going to focus on one play, an incompletion at that. But it's my favorite play from Jared Stidham. You'll also see a piece on Pat's pulpit about that. We've got some news. The Danny Etlin experiment seems to have come to an end. And we'll also have some housekeeping stuff. But at the outset, your usual reminders, you're going to get these all the time. Please do follow along with the hijinks. At Mark Schofield on the old Twitter machine. You can check out the work at a number of places such as InsideThePylon.com, Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, a trio of SB Nation websites. You know me from Pat's Pulpit. Also, Bleeding Green Nation, where I co-host the QB Sco Show. You might see a little bit of theme with the names here. Perhaps I'm an egomaniac. What can I say? Also, Big Blue View, where I cover the New York Giants. Also, people have sometimes asked me, Mark, how can we help you? I've said things like leaving reviews on iTunes and things like that. Also, you could pick up if you wanted to. You don't have to. But Pro Football Weekly's Bears Preview Magazine, that's on newsstands now, also via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other places, the ProFootballWeekly.com website, because there is an article in that magazine from yours truly about why I'm kind of buying in on Mitchell Trubisky this year. I know you've probably heard a lot of people saying he's struggling in camp. They're scaling back the offense. It's going to be tough for him this year. The Matt Nat Nagy year two experiment Trubisky might not be as, shall we say, successful as some hope. But I'm still in on Trubisky. Buy that article, read why, and then you can, I don't know, use it for kindling or something because you probably don't want to read the rest of a Bears preview magazine if you're listening to this show. But if you do, hey, fantastic. Now, I said we're going to have some housekeeping. I wanted to sort of give people the lay of the land for this show for the rest of the preseason, then into the regular season. Kind of have gotten into a bit of a flow here in the preseason. We're going to be rolling Tuesday and Thursday shows. Try to get some guests on. Try to get more of my insight and analysis because hopefully that's what you're here for. If not, what are we doing? So that's going to be kind of the preseason schedule. When we get into the season, you're you're going to get an extra show. You're going to be basically getting shows kind of like Sunday night and Tuesday and Thursday. You're going to get a post-game reaction show from me. If you listen to my work when I was doing Locked On Patriots the past two years, you know I used to roll out a post-game show that would sometimes drop if it's a you know late afternoon or evening game, like right after the game ended, I would record. If it's a 1 o'clock Sunday start, it might come a little bit later, but you'll get your good, your bad, your ugly. If it's a loss, you're great, you're good, and you're bad. If it's a win... We sometimes call the wins the glorious victory episodes. I'll tune in the new listeners to why it's called that a little bit later. Or your melancholy in the infinite sadness shows. Although here at Vox slash SB Nation, there's a little bit more restriction on the music I can use. So I might not be able to drop some full Smashing Pumpkins on you, but we'll see. 
So that's kind of what you can expect with this show going forward. Tuesdays and Thursdays during the preseason, Mondays slash Sunday nights, Tuesdays and Thursdays come the regular season. Now, as I said, we have some Danny Etlin news to get to. Per Field Yates, Wesleyan's own, the Patriots have waived quarterback slash wide receiver Danny Etlin per source. Etlin began working at wide receiver this offseason to try to increase his roster chances. That's from the aforementioned Field Yates on the Twitter machine at Field Yates. And what this might indicate is, yes, Jared Stidham is a lock to make this roster, whether as a practice squad player or on the actual 53. And I think in the wake of what we saw Friday night and what we've been, I mean, excuse me, Thursday night, and what we've been hearing out of camp, probably more the latter, that he's, that is Jared Stidham, is going to be a lock for this 53-man roster. Now, why do I say that in the wake of Thursday night's performance? Because Danny Etlin played very well Thursday night. So very, very well. People are very excited about him. Goes 14 of 24 for 179 and a touchdown. Now, don't focus on the bottom line production numbers. I'm pretty sure I said that going into this game, but I'm going to remind you of it. Don't touchdowns, interceptions, completion percentage, yards per attempt, stuff like that. Don't get hung up on that when it comes to preseason football when you're looking at quarterbacks. Focus on the execution. And that's why we're going to spend the rest of this first half of the show talking about one play, just one play. Newer listeners to my work know that I can get into the weeds when it comes to the X's and O's. I'm going to spend about five minutes talking about one play, and I'm going to try to convince you, gentle listener, that an incompletion Jared Stidham threw near the end of the first half was his best play of the game. There will be a companion piece to this segment on Pat's pulpit shortly, so you can see the videos, the clips, the stills, and all that fun, super nerdy stuff that you've known to expect and love from me. But with just over a minute remaining in the first half, the Patriots face a second and 10 on the Detroit Lions 20-yard line. What I loved about this entire sequence of events is that Stidham got a chance to run a little two-minute drill, which is a fantastic thing for a young quarterback to do, even in his first NFL exhibition game. And Stidham did his job, got the Patriots down into scoring range. And facing the second and 10, they line up using 11 personnel. That's three receivers, one tight end, and a running back. Stidham's in the shotgun. Patriots have Jacoby Myers and Ryan Izzo on the left in sort of a pro alignment. Myers outside, Izzo in line as a tight end. And then a slot look to the right. Maurice Harris outside, Braxton Berrios in the slot. Lions have a nickel defense on the field. And pre-snap, they show Stidham two deep safeties. Two safeties, deep. That generally means you're going to get cover two, right? Cover two, two deep safeties. Again, you're going to hear nerdy football terminology all the time on this show. The first thing the Patriots do on this play is they send Myers in short motion. So he starts out wide to the left, comes in short motion towards Izzo, the tight end. The cornerback across from him doesn't just sort of slide and move his alignment. He trails him. Now that's a pre-snap indication to the quarterback that, hey, yo, number four, they might be in man coverage here. Because if the cornerback simply sort of like shuffles a little bit inside and doesn't really trail the motion man... That's more, okay, they might be in zone here. He's just sort of condensing his alignment in response to the motion. But by trailing him, Stidham knows we might be seeing man coverage. And when you see man coverage plus two deep safeties, that generally adds up to cover two man underneath. And the 
Detroit Lions do stay in that. It is important you understand that. For otherwise, what happens next is not going to be as magnificent as I'm trying to make it sound. The Patriots run sort of a two-half-field concepts. To the backside of the formation with Harris and Berrios, they run Harris on a deep out route, Berrios on what looks to be a juke route, although if you listen to Lawn with me this summer when I did Patriots A to Z over Locked on Patriots, they have sometimes locked juke routes. They have triple option routes out of the slot there. But here he runs that sort of juke where he starts upfield, stutter steps and slants to the inside. To the play side of this formation with Izzo and Myers and then the back out of the backfield, they run Izzo and Myers on what we sometimes call a dagger concept. Myers runs a dig at 10 yards. Izzo runs up the seam. And this is a two-receiver concept. The Patriots have something similar in their playbook called Indigo, although that's a deeper dig. I tried to look through some playbooks. I couldn't quite find the one-to-one comparison here, so it must be a new two-man combination. But on Indigo, it's an 18-yard dig, and then a seam, which you work towards the middle of the field if the middle of the field is open, as it would be against cover two. And then the running back runs a wheel out of the backfield. Now, as Stidham drops, he's working that seam-to-dig combination. And with the middle of the field open against this cover two look like they get, that seam is a very good option because he'll bend inside Izzo, work that middle of the field. And if it's cover two man underneath, that means he's going to get locked one-on-one against the linebacker with a chance to sort of run away from him. Now, the only thing Stidham needs to worry about is that safety, that half field deep safety to that side. Because if he sort of compresses that seam route from Izzo, that's going to take that away. But then you either get that dig or even that wheel route. Because again, you're going to have running back matched up against the safety there. Extra defender. Or you throw the dig against the corner. So Stidham hits his drop depth in the pocket and he's reading this seam to dig to wheel sort of combination to his left. And you can only get the broadcast angle of this. We don't get all 22 of the preseason games. Come on, NFL. Work with us here. But you see Stidham hit his drop depth, climb the pocket, and pull the trigger to Izzo on the seam route. And from the broadcast angle, when he lets it go, in the article I sort of pause it, you don't see where that deep safety is. But you fast forward like a couple of frames and then you see it. That safety has collapsed on the dig. And Stidham knows this. He knows once that safety commits to the dig route or even the wheel, he can throw that seam route without any fear. Because now he's got the one-on-one matchup that he wants to exploit. And he puts it in an absolute perfect spot over the defender, high so Izzo can get to it. The defender can't make a play. When you're running with your back, to the quarterback as a defender, the toughest ball to make a play on is one that's thrown just right over your head. If you don't believe me, strap on a helmet, some shoulder pads, run away from somebody throwing a football and have them throw it over your head, just right over your head. It's tough to get to that one. So Stidham puts it in a perfect spot. Izzo just can't make the catch. But for my money, that was his best throw of the night. Yes, there was the deep end to Jacoby Myers earlier on that drive. 26-yard gain, velocity placement. A little later in the game, a throw to Braxton Berrios. He had a free rusher in his face, stares it down, doesn't lose his composure, makes a great throw, takes the shot. Those were great plays. 
our great friend Byrne, our fearless leader over Pat's Pulpit, he has a piece up on Stidham this week at Pat's Pulpit, highlights both of those plays. I strongly urge you check those out. Check out that piece. But for my money, this throw from Stidham was his best of the night. Why? Processing speed, anticipation, and pocket presence. He climbs the pocket perfectly in response to edge pressure. That box is checked. Makes an anticipation throw before he really gets separation. Izzo, Stidham releases this ball. And the process is beat. He's going to read this concept, make sure that safety isn't squatting or compressing that, that seam route. He reads it perfectly, makes the anticipation throw before it looks open to the rest of us. So for my money, if you want to be impressed from Stidham's performance, look at that throw. Up next, some more nerdy football stuff. We're going to talk with Doug Farrar. We're going to do some Brady stuff, some Edelman stuff, some Belichick stuff, some scheme stuff. We're going to talk about his book, The Genius of Desperation, and more. That's ahead on Episode 3 of The Sco Show. Mark Schofield back with you now on Episode 3 of The Sco Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network. And as I told you, we have a fantastic guest, not only one of the best football writers out there, just one of the best people in the business. I was lucky enough to work with this gentleman over at Bleacher Report for the NFL 1000 Project, and he put together a roster of what I think will go down at some point here in the football media world as a murderer's row of football writers. He now works for USA Today doing fantastic work, and he's an author of The Genius of Desperation. We're going to talk about that as well. Mr. Doug Farrar. Doug, my friend, how are you, buddy? Good. Uh, good Good to talk to you again, Mark. And, yeah, that, that NFL 1000 crew, um, gosh, especially in the first year when we had 17 guys, it was just nuts. <laughs> the, yeah. the sheer talent that was coming through my inbox was insane. Yeah, I mean, you put together guys like, you know, myself, you had Justice Mosqueda, Brandon Thorne, Duke Mannyweather, Marcus Mosher, Derek Clausen. Like, the list goes on and on. And everybody's pretty much gone on to be doing, you know, great things as well. But I still think that that project, man, we put some good content out there. Yeah, I have to give Ian Kenyon a lot of credit for doing stuff on the back end. He reached out to a lot of these guys as well. But yeah, it was, it was something else. And, and Ethan Young. Who is now what the director yeah, of player personnel at UCLA? Like, yeah, and he he was like he was writing like really good write ups. He's like like twelve years old. It was I know, disgusting. I know, it's <laughs> crazy. It's crazy how, <laughs> you know how old like, you are. How do how does how can he recruit when he can't get into bars and stuff? I don't get it, but he's doing great. I met him at the combine like three years ago. I'm like, are you even old enough to book a room? Right. What the heck? Can't get a plane ticket. All right, Doug, let, let's dive into it now. And, and we're going to start off, of course, with your sort of generic Tom Brady question. Obviously, just turned 42. I know you've studied a ton of Tom Brady. How does he keep doing it to this point in his career? Well, the first thing I'll tell you is that Tom Brady is a pretty good quarterback. Yes. So we can just stop right there. That's esteemed analysis. Um, it, the, the first guy that comes to mind is Jamie Moyer. Um, I, I, people in Boston don't want to talk about that trip. Right. Um, at, back when the Mariners were an actual baseball team, and you would watch Moyer go into his 40s as a guy who knew how to mix up his pitches, understood hitters at a just a, a molecular level. And I think anyone who it's like it, you know the Mike Tyson thing. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Well, an offshoot of that is kind of like okay, if you lose your fastball, if you lose your 
top, like 10% top end speed. When you become more of a mere mortal, how do you adjust? Most guys, when they get hit, they have no plan. They get punched in the mouth and they're out of the game. Book and have had for eons than than any other team. Um, a lot of what Edelman did to the Rams in Super Bowl 53 was off of if the cornerback does this, I do that. And Edelman is like the best guy ever at that, besides Welker. Um, but why does Brady still get it done? I mean, they've adapted a lot. And, you know, they've gone through so many different iterations of offensive scheme. I know the play calls are, they're not like changing the play calls, except they did when they went speed no huddle and they shortened the, the verbiage. But they've gone from kind of a heavy run to the spread thing with Moss and Welker to the two tight end thing with Gronk and Hernandez. And then, you know, obviously not with Hernandez. Right. And now it's, it's a three and five step quick passing game. It still has deep elements. But they brought the run back in, and they were, in the second half of the season, the, one of the best power-running, pure-gap, kick-your-ass teams I've ever seen. So why he's still good, I mean, it's, it's his ability to read and react, but it's also, I believe, an unparalleled... Uh, you tell me which quarterback has succeeded for this long in NFL history with five or six different, not only different schemes, but offensive philosophies. Yeah. Um, his, just his acuity to, to change on the fly per play, per drive, per game, per year, per, you know, fraction of his career, I, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it, perhaps in any sport. I mean, imagine if Jamie Moyer once had a 100-mile-an-hour fastball and then he turned into the junk ball mastery he was later. That's, and I'm not – I mean, Brady still threw, what, 10 uh, deep – pass touchdowns it's not like he's an infirm or anything he still has you know a a pretty decent arm he can still move around okay he's got all the physical skills but you know Brady's going through kind of what Breeze is going through there are points at which the mortality shows up and then he's able to overcome it and that to me is the most remarkable thing yeah, and building off that point, Doug, you just got done ranking your top 100 players, and when you got to the Brady write-up, you pointed out that under pressure last year, he still performed extremely well. I think he had nine touchdowns when he was pressured. He did have five interceptions when pressured. But is that part of it with him, is that even at this point, you might expect a quarterback of his age to sort of get flustered at those moments, and it doesn't seem like that's happening as much as we might expect? Well, I think when you're talking about quarterbacks under pressure, there are there are two, and I'm kind of overgeneralizing here, there are two basic things that can happen. You either stay within structure under pressure or you move outside of structure. Now, there are guys like Russell Wilson who are, and Aaron Rodgers, I would, I would put in this category right now, who are better outside of structure than inside structure. And then there are structure guys. And Brady is not a move-out-of-the-pocket guy. He is amazing at moving up in the pocket, unless Justin Tuck is there, um, as we have seen. But Brady stays within himself when he's under pressure. That's the difference. I mean, to to make it very simplistic, he doesn't – when that moment happens, you know, when he gets backside pressure or pressure in his face or whatever, he's not perfect. But he doesn't think to himself, oh, gosh, what I should do is run around in a circle and, you know, throw Blake Bortles pass and look like an idiot. That's not what Tom Brady does. He goes, okay, I have these four things that work off a three-step drop, off a five and a hitch, you know. He's got that so dialed in that he's not going to go outside his biorhythms under pressure 
at all. That doesn't mean he won't make mistakes, but he's not, he's not going to try and become something he's not just because things are, um, because he's in an adverse situation in the down. You know, Doug, you mentioned Julian Edelman, and I want to switch gears and talk about him for a moment because you brought up the name Wes Welker. And perhaps in that dead time post-Super Bowl when there wasn't much to talk about, there was a debate in Patriot circles of Welker versus Edelman, and the overwhelming choice there was Edelman. Is that sort of underselling Wes Welker and what he did in this offense? Because that's where I stand on it. It's a recency bias situation. We're forgetting just how good Welker was. I remember about when I was still doing the football outside of his almanacs four or five years ago, um, we had a thing where every white slot receiver under six feet tall had to be compared to Wes Welker in the book. Right. And I think, I think you're kind of short selling each of those guys when you compare them to each other. I think they're pretty different players. Welker was more, you know, the distributor from zero to eight yards, maybe up to 12 to 15 after the catch Edelman to me, I mean, and when he came into the league, I noticed right away, the Patriots are more likely to line him up at X or Z. He was more likely to run like a 15 yard skinny slant. He had always had more downfield speed. I think he's physically stronger. Um, and I've watched him work out for all games as Jim besides Donald Penn. I've never seen anyone work harder uh, with Travell and Edelman. He's just a fiend as far as that goes. I think he's turned himself into a guy who can do a lot of the things Welker did. Um, you know, was Welker more of a chess master as far as routes and options and things like that? Maybe to a point. I think Edelman has more pure physical ability as far as size, speed, strength, whatever, um, after the catch ability. And certainly, I mean, if you watch that Rams game, it was just a master class in how to confound a defense that didn't adjust and then tried to adjust and adjusted wrong. Um, Yeah. I wouldn't really compare them to each other. I think Edelman's kind of his own guy. And of course the other debate that got touched off this offseason with Edelman was hall of fame with him. Now, obviously look, he's still in the midst of his career has a long way to go, but do you think there's a chance that a Julian Edelman could find himself in Canton or do you think he's more like a Patriots hall of fame type player? And that might be his ceiling. Um, I mean, when you look at Welker, he's got what Bill James used to call the black type categories, where he's led the NFL in X categories. Edelman, I'm looking at his stats on PFR right now. He's never led the NFL in any one thing. And, you know, does that, he's had 2,000-yard seasons. Do these things matter in, in the grand scheme of things? I mean, when we're, talk, we're talking about the Hall of Fame, I think they do. Yeah. Um, I think he's more of a ring of honor guy. I, I certainly, I mean, he's an astounding player, but when you're talking about the hall of fame, I mean, people ask me, should Jim Plunkett be in any one, two Super Bowls? I would maybe disagree. Should Eli Manning be in any one, two Super Bowls? I don't, well, I wouldn't put Eli Manning in. So that's my standard. Um, I think Edelman is an amazing player. I don't think he's system dependent, but I do think he showed up in the perfect situation for his talent. So to me, he's more, you know, you put him up at the stadium next to Gino Capaletti and everyone's happy. Yeah. So you're not a believer in wide receiver wins, as it were? Uh, I, I, I only believe in long snapper wins. Those are the there only ones go. I go by. I like holder wins. I think holders are underappreciated. Good point. I need to get into that. 
Yeah, there's probably some calculations we can do on R to figure that one out. I want to ask you, Doug, about Bill Belichick. Um, your book, The Genius of Desperation, which is a fantastic read, you wrote in the final chapter, Belichick has become the foremost and most successful proponent of the philosophy that you don't go into a game or a season with a definitive scheme or system. Instead, you design and vary your concepts to best meet your opponent. That's why you've seen the Patriots run everything from pure inside power runs to three tight end sets as a base package to spread sets with a tight end flexed out on offense. And it's why the Pats tend to switch from a 4-3 to a 3-4 as a base defensive concept every few years. Building off that, was last year his best coaching job in the National Football League? Mm, his best coaching job. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I do know. I mean, it. it, it and and thanks, thanks for promoting the book and, and thinking about that paragraph. I mean, look at what they did in the Super Bowl and the three plays in a row. The spread right. twenty-two personnel. That was McDaniel's thing, and certainly and, and uh, props to Belichick for crediting McDaniel's for that. But you know, when McVay talked about how he was out coached and he said, you know, I looked at the Patriots in week three and I kind of forgot what happens in week 12. And you really have to go about seven levels more macro than that with Bill. Um, there was a game against the Jaguars. So they put out nine different offensive line combinations in a single game. Yeah. I mean, it's just nuts. The, and, you know, when he was consulting with Chip Kelly and he decided, you know what, we're going to shorten our play call verbiage so we can go speed, no huddle. So one out slot Zach becomes, you know, bang 52 or whatever. Um, you know, I, even a Bill Walsh, even a Sid Gilman, you know, even the best, even a Buddy Ryan, you know, he had his, his base and his Venice 46 sub package. Most guys do what they do, and that's what they do. Um, Bill's not like that. The only guy I would compare him to in NFL history would be a guy like Clark Shaughnessy, who did everything from radicalize the T formation to, you know, shutting down the shotgun formation in the early 60s with the, putting a linebacker at middle guard to inventing a three-receiver set when he was coaching the Rams in the late 40s and he took Elroy Hirsch from halfback to flanker. Um, really, he's, Bill is just the most expansive thinker in NFL history, and that and, and that's okay. You know, you can be an expansive thinker. You can throw crap up on the, on the chalkboard or the whiteboard or on your computer, and that's all well and good. But his ability to get his coaches to buy into what the concepts are and then get those coaches to have the players executed at the level it's been done for the last 20 years. I, you know, when people talk about like, who's the best baseball player ever? Well, Babe Ruth was the best left-handed pitcher of the 1910s. And then he hit, you know, 700 and whatever home runs. To me, it's not a discussion. When we talk about the best coaches in NFL history at this point, it's not a discussion. And the reason it's not a discussion with Belichick is because he's done, you know, we talk about all Brady's systems. Well, you take all those systems for the quarterback, and then you, you know, you take that 10 times more what's been in Belichick's head. And, again, it's great to sit there and go, oh, we're going to switch to a zone defense in the second half of the season. We're going to move to 3-4. We're going to run more spread. And 95% of the coaches that do that, don't know how to execute it. Don't know how to get their coaches to get their players to execute it. The extent to which Bill has been able to do that 
on the fly with all these different philosophies, it it's it is completely unprecedented in NFL history. And if you go through the history of CEOs or you know great industrial thinkers, great you know Silicon Valley guys, it's hard to think of too many people. You know, I don't want to say Da Vinci or a Steve Jobs, but it's kind of at that level. You know, Doug, we've got obviously a post Gronkowski world to deal with as Patriots fans. And to that end, I got a question from a listener, John Limaracus, who's wondering, might we see yet another schematic change from the Patriots as they move away from the Gronkowski era? Maybe more 10 personnel, maybe more 20 personnel. How do you envision the New England offense going ahead now without Gronk? Well, it's, you know, you would know better about Isaiah Wynn's injury uh, progression. I assume they want him to be their left tackle. Yeah. yeah. It's Brown. Um, I would think that the, I mean, it, the exotic smash mouth they did, in, you know, through the playoffs and in the Super Bowl, that run game is going to stick around because it really works. And I would imagine that Belichick and Skarnecchia have come up with new iterations of, blocking schemes and that, you know, it, it could be if you, let's say, imagine the Seahawks the less mobile quarterback and the Seahawks were the only team last year to run more than they passed. The 2007 Patriots were the first team to run shotgun more than 50% of the time. So it would not be entirely out of character for Belichick to say, you know what? The Seahawks have a heavy run game and they build that off play action and shot plays off play action. Well, the Patriots were by far statistically and in efficiency, DVOA, DYAR, they were the best play action team in the NFL last year in the passing game. So I would expect some of that. You know, you have shot plays, your contested catch guy maybe becomes Nikhil Harry, who I think his skill set is perfect for that once he gets up to speed on the route concepts. Um, hopefully he won't be X'd out like Chad Ochocinco and Joey Galloway were because if you can't pick up the options, you're gone. Right. Um, I think it will be heavy play action, heavy three- to five-step drop, a lot of run game, really, really diverse run game. Maybe like the most diverse run game we've seen since Harbaugh and Roman had Kaepernick with the Niners about five years ago. You're going to see a lot of different offshoots of – you know, duo combo, gap zone, everything. I think the epicenter of their offense will be the run game, and Brady will get his shot plays off of that. And it's kind of how they won their first two Super Bowls. I mean, Brady wasn't Brady wasn't really the guy at that point. He was a part of it. He was a cog, not a superstar. Um, and I, I think we could go back to that a little bit. You know, obviously with 20 more years of acting with Brady, uh, defensively, and I have to point this out, and it's it's the most Belichick thing ever to raise a guy into a great player and then offshoot him when he becomes too expensive and bring in a veteran for similar production at like one-fifth the cost. Uh, Trey Flowers and Michael Bennett had the same number of pressures last year. I'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah. The defense is fine. Uh, Stephon Gilmore is the best cornerback in the NFL. Uh, J.C. Jackson has a ton of potential. I think they're fine. Um, yeah. You know, this is, the what, the 15th time we've all gone, oh, this is the year, and then it turns out not to be the year. I think that's where we are again. 
kind of like rinse and repeat here. Doug, let me sort of get you out of here on this, that I want to give you a chance to talk about the genius of desperation, which I cannot recommend enough. Um, if you love the X's and O's, the scheme stuff, the nerdy football stuff, like I talk about all the time, you have to get this book. It's great for kids. My son's been reading it. He loves it. Doug. I love that picture, by the way. It was so cool. It, it was amazing. And he was, it spurred, I'll tell you what, Doug, it spurred a discussion after that picture, after I took that picture, of running back reads on run plays because he was looking at the cover. And after I took the picture, I asked him, what were you thinking? He's like, they don't block one of these guys. So why yeah. don't they block him? And what happens next? If we got into a discussion about running back reads and reading your keys, it, it's just a fantastic cover. But yeah, he's been loving the book. I loved it. Doug, what's one thing you learned while putting this book together? Yeah, the cover, um, Jeff Fedoten, the editor, who did such a wonderful job with Triumph Books, we, he got the picture and he said, could you draw this up in Photoshop and like what everyone did? And it took two days to get everything really straight. Um, so it's interesting that <laughs> you're talking about run reads off that. You know, it sometimes research is reductive. Sometimes the information you get out of research is reductive. And, and obviously from... George Hallis to Clark Shaughnessy to Sid Gilman to Bill Walsh to, to Belichick and, and all the innovators. I think the thing I came away with was it's amazing how many of how many people in pro football have extended their careers without giving situational innovation a moment's thought. We've been talking about Belichick for the last 20 minutes. Um, think about how many guys are the anti-Belichick. Think about guys who come into the league and, you know, my players will fit my scheme. And that's absolutely, I'm going to be Greg Williams and I don't care what you do, I'm going to put my safety in the parking lot. Doesn't matter. No matter who the safety is, I don't care. You fit my system or else. I, the, the, the true geniuses in NFL history, AFL history, All-American Football Conference history, obviously we can't forget Paul Brown. Um, who then came into the NFL and, and showed the NFL who was boss. Um, for every one of those guys, there are 50 who just had that, what Seth Godin called the lizard brain. And it, the more I thought about it as I wrote the book and after, I did all these radio hits and I was thinking to myself, well, how many guys try and switch from a 4-3 to 3-4 and they get fired in six months because it just doesn't work? How many guys can't develop a quarterback. Look at Josh Rosen. Look at that job. Look at the coaching job the Cardinals did on offense and defense last year. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have a Belichick. You have a, a McVay. Look at McVay. I mean, McVay, justifiably so, has been showered with praise since he, you know, even way, way back when he was Jay Gruden's guy in Washington, D.C., and everyone was telling me, watch out for McVay, and we've seen why. And then he gets just he gets in the wood chipper, and you know what happens happens. But for every one guy who thinks above the line, there are fifty who don't. And it's remarkable to me. I don't want to say mediocre thinkers, but I will say replacement level thinkers have had extended careers in the NFL. I think that was my big takeaway: is for all these geniuses, how many guys just don't get it. Yeah, well, it's Doug, it's a fantastic book, and I cannot recommend it enough to listeners. Please run out and buy it. You, you will not be disappointed. Doug, just fantastic stuff. Please let everybody know where they can follow your work and how they can follow along with everything you're doing this season. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Uh, Touchdown Wire site at USA Today. Uh, we just had Matt Williamson and Pat Yusinkas come on board, and uh, we're doing some great stuff.
Fantastic stuff, Doug. Thank you so much for coming on, folks. That will do it for SCO Show Episode 3. I'll be back later this week. Until next time, please do keep on blessing those Patriots reigns down in Foxborough.